Chapter Fifty Nine of Easy Pop and Joy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah. Easy Pop and Joy by Anthony Trollope. Chapter Fifty Nine. Back in London. Mary was fond of her house in Munster Court. It was her own, and her father and Miss Tallowax between them had enabled her to make it very pretty. The married woman, who has not some pet lairs of her own, is but a poor woman. Mary worshipped her little household gods with a perfect religion, and was therefore happy in being among them again but she was already beginning to feel that in a certain event she would be obliged to leave Monster Court. She knew that as Marchioness of Brotherton she would not be allowed to live there. There was a large brick house with an unbroken row of six windows on the first floor in St. James's Square, which she already knew as the townhouse of the Marquess of Brotherton. It was, she thought, by far the most gloomy house in the whole square. It had been uninhabited for years, the present Marquis having neither resided there nor let it. Her husband had never spoken to her about the house, had never, as far as she could remember, been with her in St. James's Square. She had inquired about it of her father, and he had once taken her through the square and had shown her the mansion but that had been in the days of the former Popenjoy, when she, at any rate, had never thought that the dreary-looking mansion would make or mar her own comfort. Now there had arisen a question of a delicate nature, on which she had said a word or two to her husband in her softest whisper. Might not certain changes be made in the house at Monster Court? in reference to, well, a nursery. A room to be a baby's own, she had called it. She had thus made herself understood, though she had not said the word, which seemed to imply a plural number. But you'll be down at Manor Cross, said Lord George. You don't mean to keep me there always? No, not always, but when you come back to London... It might be to another house. You don't mean St. James Square. But that was just what it did mean. I hope we shan't have to live in that prison. It's one of the best houses in London, said Lord George, with a certain amount of family pride. It used to be, at least, before the rich tradesmen had built all those places at South Kensington. It's dreadfully dingy. Because it's not been painted lately. Brotherton has never done anything like anybody else. Couldn't we keep this and let that place? Not very well. My father and grandfather and great-grandfather lived there. I think we'd better wait a bit and see. Then she felt sure that the glory was coming. Lord George would never have spoken of her living in St. James Square had he not felt almost certain that it would soon come about. Early in February her father came to town, and he was quite certain. 
The poor wretch can't speak articulately, he said. Who says so, Papa? I have taken care to find out the truth. What a life! And what a death! He's there all alone. Nobody ever sees him but an Italian doctor. If it's a boy, my dear, he will be my lord as soon as he's born. Or, for the matter of that, if it's a girl, she'll be my lady. I wish it wasn't so. You must take it all as God sends it, Mary. They've talked about it till I'm sick of it, said Mary angrily. Then she checked herself and added, I don't mean you, Papa, but at Manor Cross, they all flatter me now because that poor man is dying. If you were me, you wouldn't like that. You've got to bear it, my dear. It's the way of the world. People at the top of the tree are always flattered. You can't expect that Mary Lovelace and the Marchioness of Brotherton will be treated in the same way. Of course, it made a difference when I was married. But suppose you had married a curate in the neighbourhood. I wish I had, said Mary wildly, and that someone had given him the living of Pugsty. But it all tended in the same direction. She began to feel now that it must be, and must be soon. She would, she told herself, endeavour to do her duty. She would be loving to all who had been kind to her, and kind even to those who had been unkind. To all of them at Manor Cross, she would be a real sister, even to Lady Susanna, whom certainly she had not latterly loved. She would forgive everybody except one. Adelaide Horton she never could forgive, but Adelaide Horton should be her only enemy. It did not occur to her that Jack the Baron had been very nearly as wicked as Adelaide Horton. She certainly did not intend that Jack the Baron should be one of her enemies. When she had been in London about a week or two, Jack the Baron came to see her. She knew that he had spent his Christmas at Curry Hall, and she knew that Gus Mildmay had also been there. That Gus Mildmay should have accepted such an invitation was natural enough, but she thought that Jack had been very foolish. Why should he have gone to the house when he had known that the girl whom he had promised to marry, but whom he did not intend to marry, was there? And now, what was to be the result? She did not think that she could ask him, but she was almost sure that he would tell her. I suppose you've been hunting, she asked. Yes, they put up a couple of horses for me, or I couldn't have afforded it. She's so good-natured. Mrs. Jones, I should think she was, but I'm not quite sure that she intended to be very good-natured to me. Why not? Mary, of course, understood it all, but she could not pretend to understand it, at any rate, as yet. Oh, I don't know. It was all fair, and I won't complain. She had got Miss Green off her hands, and therefore she wanted something to do. I'm going to exchange Lady George into an Indian regiment. You're not in earnest. Quite in earnest, my wing will be at Arden, at the bottom of the Red Sea, for the next year or two. 
Arden, I'm told, is a charming place. I thought it was hot. I like hot places, and, as I have got rather sick of society, I shall do very well there, because there's none. A fellow can't spend any money, excepting soda and brandy. I suppose I shall take to drink. Don't talk of yourself in that horrid way, Captain de Baron. It won't much matter to any one, for I don't suppose I shall ever come back again. There's a place called Perim, out of the middle of the sea, which will just suit me. They only send one officer there at a time, and there isn't another soul in the place. How dreadful! I shall apply to be left there for five years. I shall get through all my troubles by that time. I'm sure you won't go at all. Why not? Because you have got so many friends here. Too many, Lady George. Of course, you know what Mrs. Jones has been doing. What has she been doing? She tells you everything, I fancy. She has got it all cut and dry. I'm to be married next May, and I'm to spend the honeymoon at Curry Hall. Of course, I'm to leave their army and put the value of my commission into the three percents. Mr. Jones is to let me have a place called Clover Cottage, down in Gloucestershire, and I believe I'm to take a farm and be churchwarden of the parish. After paying my debts, we shall have about two hundred a year, which of course will be ample for Clover Cottage. I don't exactly see how I'm to spend my evenings, but suppose that will come. It's either that or Perim. Which would you advise? I don't know what I ought to say. Of course, I might cut my throat. I wish you wouldn't talk in that way. If it's all a joke, I'll take it as a joke. It's no joke at all. It's very serious. Mrs. Jones wants me to marry Gus Malmai. And you're engaged to her? Only on certain conditions which conditions are almost impossible. What did you say to Miss Malmay at Curry Hall? I told her I should go to Purim. And what did she say? Like a brick, she offered to go with me, just as the girl offered to eat the potato paring when the man said that there would not be potatoes enough for both. Girls always say that kind of thing, though when they are taken at their words, they want bonnets and gloves and full cloaks. And you're going to take her? Not unless I decide upon Clover Cottage. No, if I do go to Perim, I think that I shall manage to go alone. If you don't love her, Captain de Barrent, don't marry her. There's Giblet doing very well, you know, and I calculate I could spend a good deal of my time at Curry Hall. Perhaps if we made ourselves useful, they would ask us to kill and cold him. I should manage to be a sort of factotum to old Jones. Don't you think it would suit me? You can't be serious about it. Upon my soul, Lady George, I never was so serious in my life. Do you think that I mean nothing because I laugh at myself? You know I don't love her. Then say so, and I've done with it. That is so easy to suggest, but so impossible to do. How is a man to tell a girl that he doesn't love her 
after such an acquaintance as I've had with Gus Malmey. I have tried to do so, but I couldn't do it. There are men, I believe, hard enough even for that, and things are changed now, and the affectation of chivalry has gone by. Women ask men to marry them, and the men laugh and refuse. Don't say that, Captain de Baron. I'm told that's the way the thing is done now, but I've no strength myself, and I'm not up to it. I'm not at all joking. I think I shall exchange and go away. I've brought my pigs to a bad market, but as far as I can see, that is the best that is left for me. Mary could only say that his friends would be very, very sorry to lose him, but that in her opinion anything would be better than marrying a girl whom he did not love. Courtesies at this time were showed upon Lady George from all sides. Old Lady Brabazon, to whom she had hardly spoken, wrote to her a great length. Mrs. Patmore Green came to her on purpose to talk about her daughter's marriage. "'We're very much pleased, of course,' said Mrs. Green. "'It was altogether a love affair, and the young people are so fond of each other. "'I do so hope you and she will be friends. "'Of course, her position is not so brilliant as yours, but still, it is very good.' Poor dear Lord Gosling, whom, by the by, Mrs. Patmore Green had never seen, is failing very much. He is a martyr to the gout, and then he is so imprudent. Lady Mary smiled and was civil, but did not make any promise of peculiarly intimate friendship. Lady Selina protest came to her with a long story of her wrongs, and a petition that she would take the flea-body side in the coming contest. It was in vain that she declared that she had no opinion whatsoever as to the rights of women. A marchioness, she was told, would be bound to have opinions, or at any rate would be bound to subscribe. But the courtesy which surprised and annoyed her most was a visit from Adelaide Houghton. She came up to London for a week, about the end of February, and had the hardihood to present herself at the house in Monster Court. This was an insult which Mary had by no means expected. She had therefore failed to guard herself against it by any special instructions to her servant. And thus Mrs. Horton, the woman who had written love letters to her husband, was shown up into her drawing-room before she had the means of escaping. When the name was announced, she felt that she was trembling. There came across her a feeling that she was utterly incapable of behaving properly in such an emergency. She knew that she had blushed up to the roots of her hair. She got up from her seat as she heard the name announced, and then seated herself again, before her visitor had entered the room. She did resolve that nothing on earth should induce her to shake hands with the woman. "'My dear Lady George,' said Mrs. Horton, hurrying across the room, "'I hope you will let me explain.' She had half put out her hand, but had done so in a manner which allowed her to withdraw it without seeming to have had her overture refused.' 
I do not know that there is anything to explain, said Mary. You will let me sit down? Mary longed to refuse, but not quite daring to do so, simply bowed, upon which Mrs. Horton did sit down. You're very angry with me, it seems. Well, yes, I am. And yet, what harm have I done you? None in the least, none at all. I never thought that you could do me any harm. It is wise, Lady George, to give importance to a little trifle. I don't know what you call a trifle. I had known him before you did, and thought he had not suited me to become his wife. I had always liked him. Then the intimacy sprang up again. But what did he amount to? I believe you read some foolish letter. I did read the letter, and I was perfectly sure that my husband had done nothing. I will not say to justify, but even to excuse the writing of it. I am quite aware, Mrs. Horton, that it was all on one side. Did he say so? You must excuse me if I decline altogether to tell you what he said. I am sure he did not say that. But what is the use of talking of it all? It is necessary, Lady George, that you and I should quarrel about such a thing as that. Quite necessary, Mrs. Horton. Then you must be very fond of quarrelling. I never quarrelled with anybody else in my life. When you remember how near we are to each other in the country, I will apologise if you wish it. I will remember nothing, and I want no apology. To tell you the truth, I really think that you ought not to have come here. It is childish, Lady George, to make so much of it. It may be nothing to you. It is a great deal to me. You must excuse me if I say that I really cannot talk to you any more. Then she got up and walked out of the room, leaving Mrs. Horton among her treasures. In the dining room she rang the bell and told the servant to open the door when the lady upstairs came down. After a very short pause the lady upstairs did come down and walked out to her carriage with an unabashed demeanour. After much consideration, Lady George determined that she must tell her husband what had occurred. She was aware that she had been very uncourteous and was not sure whether in her anger she had not been carried further than became her. Nothing could, she thought, shake in her determination to have no further friendly intercourse of any kind with a woman, not even were her husband to ask her, would that be possible? Such a request from him would be almost an insult to her, and no request from anyone else could have any strength, as no one knew the circumstances of the case. It was not likely that he would have spoken of it, and of her own silence she was quite sure. But how had it come to pass that the woman had had the face to come to her? Could it be that Lord George had instigated her to do so? She never made inquiries of her husband as to where he went and whom he saw. For aught that she knew, he might be in Berkeley Square every day. 
Then she called to mind Mrs. Horton's face, with the paint visible on it, in the broad day, and her blackened eyebrows, and her great crested helmet of false hair, nearly eighteen inches deep, and her affected voice and false manner. And then she told herself that it was impossible that her husband should like such a creature. George, she said to him abruptly, as soon as he came home, who do you think has been here? Mrs. Horton has been here. Then came that old frown across his brow. But she did not know at first whether it was occasioned by anger against herself or against Mrs. Horton. Don't you think it was very unfortunate? What did she say? She wanted to be friends with me. And what did you say? I was very rude to her. I told her that I would never have anything to do with her, and then I left the room, so that she had to get out of the house as she could. Was I not right? You don't want me to know her, do you? Certainly not. And I was right. Quite right. She must be a very hardened woman. Oh, George, dear George, you have made me so happy. Then she jumped up and threw her arms round him. I never doubted you for a moment. Never, never. But I was afraid you might have thought. I don't know what I was afraid of, but I was a fool. She's a nasty, hardened creature, and I do hate her. Don't you see how she covers herself with paint? I haven't seen her for the last three months. Then she kissed him again and again, foolishly betraying her past fears. I'm almost sorry I bothered you by telling you, only I didn't like to say nothing about it. It might have come out, and you would have thought it odd. How a woman can be so nasty I cannot imagine, but I will never trouble you by talking of her again, only I have told James that she is not to be let into the house. End of chapter 59 Recorded by Sarah